Hey girl, hey, I'm Brittany Luce and you're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR. If you've been following the news or if you've been on the internet at any point in the past six months, you've probably heard about the drama with Twitter and Elon Musk. Elon Musk, a critic and legal adversary of Twitter, appears poised from the billionaire Elon Musk. He's pulling out of the $44 billion takeover of Twitter. And that's Elon Musk. He's changed his mind about buying Twitter again and is now willing to go ahead with his takeover. It all began back in April when Musk made an offer to buy Twitter. After some resistance, Twitter agreed to a deal worth $44 billion. That's when things really started to get messy. Musk accused Twitter of lying about the number of its users that were actually bots or spam accounts, and he moved to call the whole thing off. Then the SEC came in to investigate, and all through the summer there were lawsuits, subpoenas, a town hall. Finally, in early October, Musk announced that he would buy Twitter after all, and he'd buy it at the original $44 billion price tag. Now Musk and Twitter have until October 28th to close the deal, or else Musk may have to testify under oath about his claims that Twitter misled him. I told you it was messy. But here's the thing I can't wrap my head around. Elon Musk is already one of the richest people in the world. Love him or hate him, he's successful, he's famous, he literally launches rockets into space. So why would he get himself into this very public debacle over a social media platform? What's in it for him? Well, I think it's very important for there to be an inclusive arena for free speech, uh, where all, so uh, yeah, Twitter has become kind of the de facto town square. Um, I think those are sincere concerns of his, but I think they also play to the tech bro libertarian who is his... That's Jill Lepore, political historian and the host of The Evening Rocket, a podcast about Elon Musk. And Jill is pretty skeptical of this idea that Twitter is the new town hall. Twitter is a very small version of the electorate, Hmm. right? Even we're just thinking purely in terms of the United States. But she's even less convinced that Musk would be a good steward of the platform. What about Elon Musk's own personal use of Twitter suggests that he has in mind for this forum democratic engagement, (laughs) right? I mean, he uses it to promote his brand and to sell products and to become more famous. How is that a model for a a new and reformed mode of public discourse? It's just not. Where is the evidence that in his lifetime, Musk has been working towards good government, a more accountable democracy, fairer democratic participation, more civil discourse? There's no evidence of that anywhere in, in... in Musk's whole biography. Now, he's a man who reinvents himself, but his interests don't line up in any way with those commitments. So if that's a message that he's sending about what his ambitions are in attempting to acquire Twitter, I think people would do well to raise an eyebrow. You know, I'm I'm glad you keep bringing up politics in regard to this whole Twitter discussion, because if this Twitter purchase is successful. The New York Times predicted that, you know, this sale could help increase Elon Musk's profile, um, which is already pretty, it's a pretty big profile. Um, But that maybe, you know, that raise in profile might be strategic for Musk to set himself up for a possible 2024 bid for, you know. He cannot run for president of the United States. He wasn't born in the United States. Right. But what I mean, it's more so like some sort of 
electoral. I think he thinks he's far beyond the American presidency and has far more power than the American president. I mean, I think in, you know, the closest analog might be someone you might think about, like William Randolph Hearst, the newspaper magnate who ran for president, this sort of citizen Kane, right? You could do a kind of citizen sure. Musk analysis of what it is to have so much and only want more, right? <laughs> That's the thing I think that most of us are puzzled by, <laughs> right? Like, what does it mean to be the richest person on the planet and then want to own what you believe to be the most influential tool of political communication? Right. That's a terrifying idea, right? Like, and, and and again, like, there's not an episode in this history that you can point to revealing to us that his intentions involve healthier functioning governments and healthier democracies. Okay, so maybe he can't yet buy his way into a presidency. But if Musk doesn't want that, what does he want? This brings us to the reason we brought on Jill Lepore in the first place. I wanted to break down the mythology of Elon Musk, the one that he's built around himself, the mythology that a lot of people have bought into. How did he craft it? Where is he getting his inspiration? And what's his end game? In a nutshell, what is the myth that you see Elon Musk trying to sell about himself? The story that he tells about his own life is kind of ripped out of the pages of early science fiction. He's a boy wonder, right? He's this kind of boy genius. And mm-hmm. and th- there's a whole origin story about Musk in South Africa that involves, you know, writing his first computer game and winning an award for a computer game that he wrote as a boy. He He becomes marketed as this figure straight out of comic books. And the version of the story that he's kind of bandying about now is one in which he's the ultimate futurist, right? He he is the visionary innovator mm. and engineer slash entrepreneur who will bring the light of human civilization to the stars and colonize Mars. As a historian, what I find really interesting is how wholly he has modeled his vision of the future over a really impoverished understanding of the past. So how Musk often talks about himself and what inspires him is how he was transformed as a boy by reading science fiction, by reading Isaac Asimov, uh, especially by reading Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy by Douglas Adams. These books, he will say, taught him that humankind must reach for the stars, that we must colonize other planets Mm -hmm. in order to bring the light of human consciousness elsewhere. This is among the reasons he says he should not be paying taxes because he's doing something much greater for humanity than the rest of us are doing in our ordinary work of taking care of our children and our elderly parents and going to work and struggling to pay a mortgage or rent. For Musk, his vision of himself is as the hero of a science fiction story from the 1950s. And yet he completely misreads that very science fiction. I want to actually, I want to spend some time on that point. So you brought up Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Um, That was also one of my favorite books when I was around the same age. I read it in middle school. I loved it. I thought it was hilarious. Um, And I was big into sci-fi also. Um, Different life trajectories, me and Elon Musk. (laughs) But, um, (laughs) but, you know, you, you pointed out in your podcast, he names a SpaceX ship after the heart of gold spaceship that's also in the book. Um, he, he calls Douglas Adams, the author, one of his favorite philosophers. And yet, as you said, you believe 
that he misses the mark, misses the point of the book. How does he miss? Yeah, so, you know, in the Hitchhiker's Guide stories, which are comedies, right, with this big BBC radio plays written in the 70s, were an indictment of the widening inequalities of wealth in, in Britain and in, around the world. The real bad guys in the story are these super wealthy people who want to build luxury planets where the poor <laughs> can serve them. And, you know, they were broadcast to South Africa, to Pretoria, where Elon Musk grew up under apartheid mm-hmm. in a wholly white community where all the labor was done by black people living under conditions of profound degradation and deprivation. And Douglas Adams... I think there's pretty good evidence understood Hitchhiker's Guide as an indictment of apartheid. He had on the manual typewriter with which he typed the plays and later the books, he had a sticker that read end apartheid. Like the Mm. Hitchhiker's Guide is essentially about the injustice of advanced capitalism, as is much science fiction. We think about H.G. Wells, right, in The Time Machine. Mm-hmm. A lot of these science fiction writers, are, are they're, they're indictments of colonialism in particular, right? Like, don't go to other planets and make other people your slaves. Wells was a big critic of the British Empire and British imperialism, especially mm-hmm. in Africa. Um, so what is Musk on about in <laughs> the Hitchhiker's Guide? It's like, is he that bad of a reader? <laughs> right, like, there's something about the kind of irony of, like, he is actually the villain of the Hitchhiker's Guide, to the galaxy. Right. He is he is not Arthur Dent. He's Zafrod <laughs> Beeblebrost. In the name of people and freedom and uh, democracy, stuff like that, <laughs> I hereby kidnap myself and I'm taking the ship with me. Woo! Jeff Bezos is the same way, right? He talks about having read all the science fiction as boys and it inspired, you know, why they wanted to found these rocket companies later in life. Mm. But, of course... Science fiction completely changed around the time that Douglas Adams was writing. You see the emergence of Afrofuturism or, you know. Sure. Someone like Octavia Butler, Ursula K. Le Guin, and, you know, this kind of mm-hmm. feminist science fiction and this sort of interesting kind of transgender way of thinking about alternative universes and possibilities in which the future involves a lot of suffering. And so when I hear Elon Musk talk about the future, it really sounds to me like a very, very sad version of the past. Coming up, Iron Man meets Elon Musk. The writers of Marvel's Iron Man cited Elon Musk, as you mentioned, as an inspiration for Tony Stark. And you also pointed out through your work that the first Iron Man movie came out the same year the Tesla Roadsters were released. Can you talk about how the fictionalized version of Elon Musk in Tony Stark, then influenced the real Elon Musk. Yeah, it's sort of an in- interesting reciprocity. I mean, Iron Man dates to the 1960s when he's created in comic books by Stan Lee. Iron Man, all jets he's fight and, with and Tony Stark, of course, is an arms merchant. So Iron Man is a creature of the Vietnam War. And hmm. there's, you know, implicit in the creation of the character something of an indictment of American masculinity and, and of the war itself. They're kind of pro-war at the start of Iron Man in the early 60s. Mm-hmm. And then Tony Stark becomes more anguished by what it is that he's doing, selling weapons. But he, he's injured on a trip to Vietnam. Um, that, the original comic book character steps on a landmine, and that's how he ends up needing to have his new heart. In the movie, Robert Downey Jr. movie version, of course, that injury occurs in Afghanistan. Yeah, but the character is very much updated and kind of wrapped around the idea of Elon Musk, where 
you can take Tony Stark from the 60s and glue to it the kind of cultural fascination with the Silicon Valley entrepreneur of which Musk was the best model. Mm. And, you know, it is, I didn't want to be heard to be somehow discrediting Musk's accomplishments. Like he has this extraordinary career as a businessman, you know, he goes to Stanford, get a PhD, guy's really, really smart, drops out to found his first company, you know, moves quickly through a series of startups that are extraordinarily successful and then makes this kind of fascinating move around the time of the first Iron Man where Musk moves from from San Francisco, from Silicon Valley to Los Angeles and he becomes a Hollywood figure. That you can't mm-hmm. really conceive of anyone else doing like you can't conceive of Bill Gates going to live in Hollywood. So there's this kind of interesting trajectory um, that takes him from the sort of nerdy Silicon Valley inventor guy to Tony Stark with sexy cars and sexy women. Me. I miss a few. Blow some up. I already did that. It's so interesting. You point out like him moving down to Los Angeles, uh, kind of as this moment of reinvention, and like kind of living a, a type of like rock star lifestyle. But like that's kind of how I think his fame is regarded. What what does it say about our society that Elon Musk has become a celebrity in a similar way to somebody like a rock star? Well. The happy reading of it is, here's someone who essentially is an engineer who is celebrated in a world where we don't celebrate people who have ideas. So Celebrities mm. are not celebrated for having ideas. Musk has many ideas. Mm. We should be heartened by the idea of someone with engineering genius being celebrated, right? Um, that's not exactly what he's being celebrated for, <laughs> but... I think in some ways that's maybe the least concerning piece of it. It's surprising that people aren't more concerned about the idea that you would go from extraordinary, unrivaled business success to Hollywood fame, celebrity, stardom, to political aspirations that bring you in and out of the White House, to a pursuit of a position of power possibly over communication across the whole of the planet. <laughs> I hear your concern in the way that you're framing these questions. Like, why does Musk want to buy Twitter? <laughs> what could a person with so many different kinds of power want with yet more power? You know, there's a moment, it's kind of early in the Elon Musk becomes Tony Stark era, when he's on the Stephen Colbert show, and Musk kind of strides on and, you know, with his sexy, iconic look. And Stephen Colbert says something like, like a superhero, he's the real-life Tony Stark. I, well, I'm trying to do good things, yeah. I mean... You're trying to do good things and you're a billionaire. I mean... Yeah. That seems a little bit like either superhero or supervillain. You have to choose one. And it's like, it's really not clear. You're kind of waiting to see. It's very much like a scripted Marvel moment where you just don't know. People keep giving this character more and more power. And the viewer's like, I think he might be evil. But people still give him more power. This is kind of where we are in the in the movie moment right now. We just don't quite know. That was Jill Lepore, political historian and host of the podcast, Elon Musk, The Evening Rocket. Jill also hosts another podcast, The Last Archive, which explores the death of truth. Its third season comes out October 27th. Next up, an intrepid It's Been a Minute producer joins me for a new game called Sounds Fake, but... Okay, stick around.
Okay, so the game we're playing today is called Sounds Fake, but okay. You know, like when you're at a party and you hear a friend of a friend of a friend bring up the fact that Beyonce is her cousin for the fourth time that night and you're just kind of like, sounds fake, but okay. Well, that's the spirit of this game. And to play with me, I'm here with our dear It's Been a Minute senior producer, Barton Girdwood. Barton, say hi. Hi, Brittany. <laughs> Welcome to the show. <laughs> it's weird being on this side of it. Barton, 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 Barton. Well, I think you're already doing a great job. But uh, I'm going to get to this game. So it's very much like another game you might have played called Two Truths and a Lie. But in this version, Barton has two stories to try to fake me out. And I'm allowed to ask two follow-up questions. Only two? Only two. To suss out if it's the God's honest truth or if my coworker Barton is a snake. Yes. Are you a good liar? Just tell me. Are you a good liar? I think I am, but then somehow everyone finds out that I've lied. (laughs) Sounds like something a good liar would say. All right, Barton, take it away. I was thinking on a theme because most of my personal stories um, are not shareable. So I dug into another history of mine, which is my career at NPR. Mm. So I'll give you the story. When I was an intern for the TED Radio Hour, that's how I started NPR. Mm-hmm. My former boss, after I was finished with the internship, asked me to house sit for him. And I was like, hell yeah, one, money, two, beautiful apartment. Yeah. I've been living in a studio basement apartment, all internship. <laughs> and... Went over to his house, and he, like, showed me around. He gave me the rules. And then we got to the kitchen, and he's showing me his wine and his champagne. And he says to me, and you should, like, have the other interns over for a party. And I was like, hell yeah, and stopped listening. (laughs) At which point he said something about, you cannot have blank, which I fully, like, dumped from my mind and had all the interns over. And then we drank all the alcohol that we had and uh, went to, like, pick alcohol that he had at his place and I had to choose between the bottle of wine from 2008 or three bottles of champagne in the back of the fridge in my mind I was like 2008 seems like a long time ago (laughs) that must be expensive (laughs) and who would buy three bottles of expensive champagne so we drank all the champagne had a lovely time went to bed three days later I get a text from my boss hey the house looks great Where's my champagne? (laughs) No. uh... And I'll leave the story there. What was the brand of champagne? Vivet Clicquot, or however you say it, which is when I learned that that is expensive champagne. Why would you drink three bottles of somebody's (laughs) booth? Like, what were you thinking? That's not a question. That was just a rhetorical question. That was not a follow-up. Me asking, what were you thinking? That was not a follow-up. I will say that I went to, like, the, immediately when I got that text, I did not respond. I went to the liquor store to replace it. <laughs> and that's when I discovered <laughs> that's that when you found out. I c- cannot afford <laughs> more than one bottle. So I made him a post-it note with three little bottles of the Viveca Clos and crossed one out. Which friends did you have over? What were their names? I don't know if I can say their names on air without their permission. You can give, you can give code names. You can tell me how many. Let's get some deets. Let's, let's, let's pick it up. 20, 25, maybe, many of whom still work at NPR, at Planet Money, at All Things Considered, at the TED Radio Hour. Oh, so you were like, this is this is like hot info. Like you don't you can't share names because <laughs> careers are at stake, basically, is what you're saying. Exactly. <laughs> hmm. He says he forgave me, but I'm still not sure. <laughs> hmm. This is tricky because 
under no circumstances would I let someone in their early 20s <laughs> throw a party in my home. <laughs> like, why would I do that? Let alone leave your expensive champagne in the refrigerator. <laughs> the situation itself is so implausible that leads me to believe that it's fake, but then it's so implausible and it sounds so fake. I feel like you're trying to psych me out. And so I think that your story is true. It is very true. Former boss, I still plan to buy you the Vivek Clicquot. Wait, you didn't buy it? <laughs> no, I still haven't. <laughs> you know what, though? This is a good accountability. We're opening up. Accountability is going to flow through your life like a mighty stream. All right, Barton, give me story number two. So, Brittany, for years and years of my life, I covered politics with the NPR politics mm-hmm. team. Mm-hmm. And that means that you have to go on the road and meet politicians and hold microphones up to their mouths while right. someone else talks to them, right? Did you hit someone in the head <laughs> with microphone? Worse. <laughs> so went up to Capitol Hill with one of the hosts of Morning Edition. Mm-hmm. It was a very important interview with uh, Bernie Sanders. And Steve Inskeep and Bernie were sitting there, and I was on my knees in front of Bernie setting up his microphone. Right, right. And Steve cracks a really good joke. And Bernie starts laughing, and I start laughing. And as a very flamboyant man who likes to throw his hands around and gesture wildly mm-hmm. and, like, you know, touch people, <laughs> like, my hand went to Bernie Sanders' knee. <laughs> Immediate silence. We look at each other straight in the eyes, and I'm like, oh, my God, what have I done? No. (laughs) Immediately, like, quickly, like, finish, like, tying things up and then run to the corner behind my editor and, like, don't remember a word that was said in that interview. (laughs) (laughs) What city was this? This is in Washington, D.C. Interesting, because you said, like, travel around asking people questions, but you also said that this happened in D.C., Oh, look at you paying attention to detail. Hmm. I feel like I should turn my camera off so you can't see my face react. I told you I'm a bad liar. Now, see, that is something that somebody would say if they were lying and they wanted to throw me off. <laughs> I needed to stop talking. <laughs> That's something that somebody would say. It, see, you keep doing it. This is like you're psyching me out, and I don't like that. You have one more question, though. I, got, I know I got one more question. One more question. After this happened, you probably, I'm sure you told, like, you told like friends and things like that. I I wonder like what was what were people's reactions? Um, uh, Ooh, a lot of dead air. Ooh. <laughs> Ooh. <laughs> Maybe they didn't react because it never happened. Because you're lying, and this sounds fake. It's fake, but mm. only part of it. Wait, um, wait, wait, only part of it's fake. So you did catch on to the lie in that I did travel around the country and I did interview Bernie Sanders on the road in 2019. Mm -hmm. But the person's knee that I touched was not Bernie Sanders. It was instead House Leader Paul Ryan. For some reason, I feel like that makes it worse. It's so much worse. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, no. The look in his eyes, the terror, the terror in my eyes, the terror in his eyes. I mean, we look directly at each other. <laughs> like, wow. It was my most humiliating moment as a producer for NPR. I appreciate you sharing that because I imagine that you've been recovering from this for some years. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Barton, I feel like I've learned so much about you today. I appreciate you and your openness in sharing and lying to me. My mom always said I was an oversharer. <laughs> Well, 
that's all for this round of Sounds Fake, but okay. Barton, thank you for sharing your revealing and vulnerable truths with us. Thank you for having me, Brittany. This episode was produced by Barton Girdwood, Jessica Mendoza, Liam McBain, Janet Ujong Lee, Jamila Huxtable. Engineering support came from Joby Tonseco. Jessica Placek is our editor. Verilyn Williams is our executive producer. Yolanda Sanguini is our VP of programming. And our big boss is NPR's senior VP of programming, Anya Grundman. I'm Brittany Luce. You're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR. 